The Secret Ingredient Chapter 3 Tuesday, Graceland, Promised Land Grace wobbled slowly down the steep cabin steps, hugging the railing for dear life. Maintaining that tenuous state between waking and sleeping was her way of going back to sleep once she got in the car, so I teetered my own boundary of giving her space while guarding that she didn't fall head over heels to the bottom of the flight. Once she got on terra firma, something made her turn and glance into the guy's cabin's carport next door. That's when she got a look at their truck for the first time. The spell was broken and her eyes flew open wide. Wait, that gun rack, the truck, that looks very familiar, Grace whispered furtively. Same, Grace, but I didn't want to spook you by saying anything, I concurred. The dread from the night before resurfaced. It's definitely the one that cut me off, she said, her voice low and smaller than usual. Right? When I saw it yesterday, it looked so familiar. But then after talking to the guys, I thought it must be my imagination. Was it that blue color or was it gray? She asked. Um, I really don't know. I got so shaken up when it happened, I hardly looked. Like it blended in with the road, like that one. Agreed. And remember what he said about running us off the road? Did you tell him what happened? No, I thought you did. Now that I'm thinking, maybe it was Mary's Obama pumper sticker that they recognized from before and decided to take a closer look at our politics. That, plus with the convenient timing of them finding a place to stay right when needed, what should we do? Let's just get the hell out of here, I urged, hoping that this was the most obvious solution to her too. I was happy to leave well enough alone. Surely she wasn't the type who would want to confront the men. I was genuinely scared, but she seemed quite calm as usual. But it doesn't make sense that they'd follow us all the way here just to engage us in conversation and then screamingly disagree with us and stomp off. In my heart, I don't think there was any secret malice. I reflected on the previous night's scene, trying to be practical. It didn't matter. We needed to get out of there right away, either way. Let's just go. She agreed and I drove slowly up to the road without turning on my lights, trying to be as quiet as possible. It wasn't long until I was back on the main road and relieved to see that she was back asleep. I liked my early morning quiet time. It gave me time to think. I drove from about 4.15 until just before 6.30, listening to the radio through my headphones. I decided to see if I could find any synchronicity. From Knoxville to Nashville, along I-40, there weren't many choices besides country and western and gospel singing. I activated the search feature on the radio. As it skipped from station to station, landing alternatively on news, twang, talk shows, and preachers, it finally landed on one playing Elvis Presley. That seemed synchronous. I punched a button quickly before it moved on to the next station. That's when it hit me what was playing. I got chills up and down my arms. It was promised land. I certainly received my synchronicity. Music never fails, good old rock and roll. In case you don't know, it's a travel song from the East Coast to the West. Elvis Presley sang it, indeed, and the Grateful Dead covered it. The promised land is none other than California, the golden state, our destination. It's a story about yearning for a better life going west to make one's fortune, being supported by loved ones right when it's needed the most, and reconnecting with home once the goal is achieved.
I was reminded of Joseph Campbell's theory of the monomyth, the hero's journey, and what happens after being called to adventure. I wondered if Grace had resonated with his ideas when she sought to define the cycle. I look forward to hearing her explain the steps of natural order. The time passed quickly. As the sky began to brighten, I saw a steamy fog had settled close to the ground. The landscape was flat in every direction, so there would be no problem finding a place for Grace to watch her morning show. I looked at the clock and then at the sky and realized I had better find a place soon. The sky's colors grew more beautiful by the minute. There were hundreds of shades, from yellow to orange to red to purple to teal, blending like a rainbow one into the next, using the clouds as a backdrop to further embellish God's overall. I passed a sign for a rest stop in three miles, and I put my sights on it. Grace stirred. Of course, she woke up exactly on time. I pulled into a parking spot a short distance from the welcome building. I had thought about it and decided I wanted to take a peek. I couldn't imagine that it would hurt anything. Grace looked at it every day and she wasn't blind. Eyes wide open. I'm coming along, I told her. She seemed happy about it. We headed towards a small clearing where the sight line to the sun was unobstructed. There were trees off in the distance, but they didn't present a problem. As we went the short way, I noticed a raccoon in my peripheral. It wasn't the normal way to see a raccoon at a rest stop, watching it waddle away from an overflowing trash can. It was halfway up a tree and seemed to be hiding behind it. As I walked by, it was about 30 feet away and it literally peeked its little head around the corner of the tree and stared directly at me. His brightly piercing black beady eyes stood out, shadowed by pitch black fur. Around that was a contrasting shock of white fur. His cute black and white face looked like he was trying to tell me something with a strange, intentional, and knowing look. It was absurd in a weird way because of the focus on and of the eyes, just when I was about to give mine a whole new experience. We stared at each other for a few long moments. I caught up to Grace and asked her if she saw it, but she hadn't. She said it was probably a spirit animal sighting that correlated with my first sun-gazing experience. That sounded facts, especially after the look it gave me. Then she said with joy and enthusiasm, there she is, as she looked at the sun. Sure enough, the timing was perfect as it was just dawning over the horizon. She told me to look for a brief period, 10 to 20 seconds, so I did. I don't know if I had worked myself up for an event of profound clarity or what, but remarkably, that's exactly what happened. In those first 17 seconds of my new bond with the sun, my world expanded exponentially, no longer a mental construct like the day before. I had an intensely emotional flash of insight as I grasped that the sun is the ultimate source of everything on earth, and most importantly, even the origin of love itself. It's not of the earth like the wind, the water, or the land. It creates all those things. The earth is entirely dependent on it. I wondered why its significance is so overlooked. I couldn't understand why I had never ever, not even once in all my 25 years, taken a tiny little peek. 
looking at it in real time was different than seeing it in pictures. It was outrageously beautiful, a living ball of fire. It was not boring. It warmed me inside. I figured that being with Grace helped because she was in a deep state of meditation as she took in the rays. Over the next few minutes, after I closed my eyes and pondered the short episode, I continued to experience the awe. I enjoyed a sublime state of what I can only describe as spiritual ecstasy. The whole thing was unlike anything I had ever experienced before. I was full of light, expansive, and uplifted. Life had so much more meaning than I had ever known before. After about 10 minutes, she was ready to go. We ran into the welcome center to wash up since we were right there. I volunteered to keep driving since I had only been behind the wheel for a couple hours. Plus, I was more in the mood than ever. We hopped in and I took off. She was going to tell me the next insight. I was filled with exuberance and love for life. Phenology's Natural Order of Everything The fields rolled by, shimmering with early morning dew. Grace got directly to the point. The third insight is the most important, plus it's pretty much a whole idea. I mentioned it when we first talked. It says that not only do we live in a materialistic universe, but it's also a universe of dynamic energy. We ourselves are intricate energy patterns interacting with the greater universal patterns of energy. And that fits with the meta insight. You're saying that the energy is made in the angles created by the relationship between the sun and earth, time, along with space. Right, that's the simplified version, because we also want to acknowledge that this also happens on a higher level to create the whole universe. She continued, and since you understand that part, let's go over all the various meanings they can have in the sequence of natural order. Okay. I usually use the picture of a clock on a laminated board to get the point across. We don't really need the picture since I know you can see a clock in your mind easily. Imagine the whole clock represents a year. Each hour number represents a month. Got it. So this is a fast overview, so I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but I want you to see first that there really is such a thing as a natural order of progression. Get a feel for how it's marked out and expressed through a symbolic year. These meanings are the same as what are given to the signs of the zodiac. Okay, sounds good, I said, as I zip past an 18-wheeler hauling livestock. Just like we already talked about, where each season has three months, there is another pattern within the 12 months that has four monthly categories, spiritual, physical, mental, or emotional, three of each to make the 12 months. You go around the clock beginning at three o'clock for March, because it is the first month of the astronomical year. So with March at three o'clock, it is spiritually oriented. And then there's the first sign, Aries. Four o'clock relates to the physical world, five o'clock the mental, and the six o'clock to the emotional world. Then you can repeat that pattern two more times. So seven o'clock is spiritual, eight o'clock is physical, nine o'clock is mental, and 10 o'clock is emotional, I said. You got it, and so on. In my head, I thought spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, S-P-M-E, S-P-M-E. She said, I come from the astrological tradition of seeing the time periods as elemental. So I was taught fire, earth, air, water, which is F-E-A-W. So I use that as my memory acronym.
How does she do that, I wondered, since it seemed like she had read my mind. While she was talking, I was also concentrating on the driving. What she said seemed important. Fortunately, the traffic was still pretty light. This stretch of highway had a reputation for having a heavy concentration of big rigs. So, four o'clock symbolizes the revelation of the actual thing that was only in its consciousness stage at three o'clock. Whereas three o'clock has an ethereal, not so real sense of consciousness and identity, four o'clock is about the real world, like nature, resources, and all the things that consciousness makes. You might think of it as the energy slowing down here and taking on mass and form. Okay, so four o'clock is about the things and stuff in our natural world. Right, it is the basic encounter with nature and others. So to give you an analogy, this energy is like a clear mountain stream. The pure water representing spirit comes from the sky, flows down the mountain, and then manifests as part of the earth. Oh, that's lovely. So the overall theme of April when Taurus begins is fundamental, like basic. Here it is as simple as encountering what's outside of ourselves. In terms of the overall cycle, you can see it is an early placement. However, from the perspective of this second step, there is no future of 10 more steps. There is only the first and second step, like the yin and the yang, and they make up the whole of everything. So there is an energy of broadness and generality. The theme of the month shifts and evolves as it marches through the days. Here there is all sorts of manifestations in Taurus stemming from the idea of first encounter with the physical world. For example, there is the desire for things of value, being grounded, feeling secure, the practical exchange of time for money, holding out for what is of true value, appreciating and sharing the wealth with others, and loving the beauty of cultivated nature as well as caring for the earth, which is our most true partner. All of these are Taurus themes. On to the third step, five o'clock on the clock. Once the concept of encountering physicality plays out, the mind enters the scene. Objectivity and reasoning are born. The theme of late May through most of June, zodiacally Gemini, is to name and talk about everything. It evolves to be sociable and light, almost superficial. Between five and six o'clock, there's curiosity. By naming something, it's officially split from the whole. Have you ever read the Tao Te Ching? She asked, seemingly going off on a tangent. Uh, no, I've heard of it though, I said. Okay, that's a start. On the first page, it says the unnameable is the eternally real. Naming is the origin of all particular things. So before it is named, it exists as a thing, and before that, as a consciousness. It is by naming things that they become separated from the whole and are set into the motion, making polarity. The more it names and thinks, the more clarity, divisiveness, and diversity come into play. She moved on to six o'clock and explained that at the bottom of the cycle, there is depth and soul. The previous step of thinking drove the next step of giving meaning to the thoughts. The meaning is experienced as emotions. Thoughts are considered masculine or outgoing energy and feelings are feminine or indwelling. She said that six o'clock was the realm of cancer, prompting me to ask why a zodiac sign was named after such a terrible disease. I think it happened the other way around, she laughed, but actually, yes, there are some disturbing correlations regarding the sign and the disease. I don't know why it happened like that. 
She continued, home and mother, the family, and how you are nurtured all form the psychology. The subconscious, the basement of the self, internalizes and holds the psyche together. At this point, the negative and positive emotions are at their most personal. There's compassion, but also being a crybaby out of self-pity. There's a whose fault kind of energy. You know, just all the negative emotions when one is saying me, me, me in an early childlike way. Okay, I'm following. So people feel that psychology is about the study of life itself rather than the study of an aspect of life. It is, in fact, the foundation upon which a self sits, what the nurturing look like that will determine the next steps of the cycle. But still, it's only a piece of the cycle, not the whole thing. We gain more control over our psychology if we understand that most people have choices about where to place their focus. So I interrupted, that's what I was wondering about. The cycle sounds awfully faded. Like we're going through each of these concepts, a new one every day, and we encounter it. No choice. But here you're saying that there is a choice. The choice is in how you deal with it. So yes, plus different personalities perceive these energies differently. Now, if you're actively working with the cycle, then you'll find there's a bridge over the bottom which you can choose to take or not, meaning you don't have to suffer through emotional hell necessarily. I say take the bridge. However, just a quick aside, think about when all the clock's hands point to the bottom of the cycle. 666, a numerical symbol for hell. But yes, to answer your question, we have a choice here to go high or go low. Our free will still exists. So it really does matter how we think about things. And there are righter ways to think about things than others. <clears throat> my first instinct was how to avoid my own personal quagmires, of course. Absolutely. And the more points you know about, the more choices you have. Okay, I think I get it. Well, let's take a break from this for now. That's the first of the three sets of four. Get a feel for the first four because the next four will be the same general pattern of concepts only they express on a more active, developed, and specific nature. Okay, I can't wait to see what's next. I was enjoying the lesson, but the road drone was starting to hit hard. A cup of coffee would be perfect to keep me focused. Oh, thank heavens, there was a 7-Eleven ahead. I already had my seatbelt unbuckled when I pulled up to the gas pump and gratefully exited the car. with the mostest. We weren't far outside of Nashville. I went in, ran to the restroom, and bought the coffee and gas. Grace pumped. Then she went in, and I walked around the car, stretching my legs. The crisp, cool autumn air was a little nippy and energizing. I thought I could drive more, but I wasn't thrilled about the idea. I had a pocket notebook and wanted to write some things down. When Grace came back and got into the driver's seat, I was relieved. I slipped into the passenger's side and buckled the belt. She placed a bag of something she had purchased on the seat between us. No bucket seats in Mary. Let's hit it, she said, zooming off in a flash. We were back on I-40. After a few minutes, she told me to look in the bag. There was a present for me. I love presents. I peeked inside and lo and behold, there was a package of the humble hostess cupcake. Yes, that would do to satisfy my sweet tooth. Making a cupcake video more interesting was one of my favorite things to think about. 
I did wonder how I would go on and on, day after day, expounding on flour, sugar, and butter. Much can be said about the anatomy's relationship to the food it eats, but how long could this continue? This exaltation, this epitomizing, this adulation over a cake baked in a small paper cup. Oh, the multitudinous variations on a theme. Melodrama was always a fallback approach. I offered Grace a piece and she took it. As she ate, she said, love it, but it's definitely missing something. I seized upon the comment. Like what? I should have been ashamed. In my imagination, Grace would carelessly spill the tea and Kiyoshi's ingredient would slip from loose lips. I actively preyed upon an old lady's relationship with her dear friend, like taking candy from a baby, I hoped. But either she didn't know or Kiyoshi had warned her. My quick, desperate tone probably raised suspicion. She turned her attention to the road and said that it could be the preservatives affecting the taste. Then she offhandedly said, On the other hand, Sarah, you know homemade baked goods are filled with love. No help. I changed my tack. So are gifts, I responded appreciatively. So thank you. This is delicious. After a few minutes of enjoying the cupcakes, I made some notes and produced the following TikTok, which you've probably already seen. Guess what, fam? We're on the road and no cupcake shops within a hundred mile radius. That doesn't stop me. These here are not just any lackluster cupcake. They are the big daddy of cupcakes, the renowned hostess cupcake, with festive decorative white loops of vanilla piped atop their smooth chocolate fondant-like icing. They are the epitome of a standard cupcake, the original individual snack cake. They sit, already unwrapped and exposed, in their brown plastic duplex cake holder. They're like two round breasts covered in a chocolate bikini. I show this. Like Pavlov's best dog, I salivate, and my mouth forms supreme eating pose just looking at them. Picture of my mouth. They're yummy and they really bring back the memories. They were one of the first cupcakes I ever had as a child. They're hard to coax out of their little plastic storage shells. I don't remember having this trouble as a child. They fit in so snugly. I extract one languidly. The creamy frosting inside is white and sticky with itty bitty air bubbles. The consistency is nice and smooth like thickened cream over my tongue. It is so marshmallowy. The mouthfeel of a cake is heavier than expected. The package boasts frosted chocolate cake with creamy filling. Indeed, they are a snack classic and should be heralded. One time I read a blog where the reviewer would say wired for what was good about the product and tired for what was not. My hostess cupcake review, wired, reliability, tired, preservatives, the end. I posted it on my Baby Cakes Connoisseur account. It got 589 views and 63 likes. Not bad, not good. I turned my attention to the map. We were already just out of Nashville, more than halfway to Memphis. It was a short driving day, plus we gained an hour. The plan was to go straight to Graceland and then, after the tour, check into our boxcar B&B. I was expecting something a little weird, but Grace said it had two rooms and a bath in between, so I figured it would be fine. I was very keen to see Graceland. Bogged it down with CTs. 
As we got closer, my mind turned to stories I had heard about Elvis. Some of them were real doozies. There were plenty of people who wanted to air his dirty laundry. I couldn't help but think that they were driven to do so by the promise of cold, hard cash. Fans would buy the papers with the stories and look for more, so the more outlandish, the better. This led me to ask Grace, why do you think, I mean, how do we know that conspiracy stories aren't true? Well, maybe some are. Others have a grain of truth at their core. For example, the Epstein story. People in power did, in fact, escape to his island hideaway and take advantage of young women, some of them minors. What he did was outrageous, did involve wealthy, famous politicians and royalty, revolved around sexual deviancy, and was completely revolting. Disgustipating. Right, and for the CTs, this morphed into a salacious story about a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who abuse children and harvest their blood to make a drug called adrenochrome that helps them retain and gain more power. But if it were true, wouldn't there be evidence, like what came from the Epstein case? It's exactly the same as what I thought. The Epstein case had some obvious parallels, and it was a good example of how when horrible things happen, there's evidence and people who talk about it. It's really part of an overarching theory that the elite have control over the world and they manage it immorally. Regardless of people's paranoia about being controlled by evil overlords, the truth is that everyone is subservient to the cycle. Everyone must deal with their own personality and how it interacts with the incoming energies. No one is exempt from personal challenges. But what if plus large groups of people always have conflicts within and there are good people willing to expose what's bad, especially over the course of decades? The CTs give these overlords way much more power than is possible. That just seems like common sense. And not only that, but the current charts show that the energy is such that there would be many people falling for conspiracies and other people able to make advertising revenue by scamming them. Naturally, it also happens because of the growth of the internet, and even that shows in the charts. What charts exactly? The astrology charts that show the cycles of the energy through symbolism. This is what shows that the conspiracies aren't true. I mean, generally speaking, they aren't true. The themes of the energy in the timing charts indicate, from a higher perspective, that all of what is happening would be happening. No one's free will is usurping the greater cycle. How could it be? I went off on a tangent and asked her, what do you think about aliens? Aliens fall late in the cycle. I'd say in the 11th hour, but clockwise, it's actually a little past one o'clock, meaning they're more a concept than a reality. Obviously, they're beyond our current science, which falls at the end of 12 o'clock, the last area of the physical world. See, we've never caught one. We've never witnessed one on the evening news. No one I know has ever touched one, and I know plenty of people who would want to. At this point, they are a mental construct and beyond the world's normal structure. You sound like a Martian yourself, or possibly a robot, I said, kidding around. She laughed. As things become more virtual, it will be harder to know what is and what isn't manifested truth. Sentient robots, deep fakes, the like. But look at Keck. What's that? It's a kind of religion for people whose energies are focused in the later part of the cycle. The Keck religion mocks actual religion. 
Yet, we shouldn't just label it as a conspiracy theory and forget about it. It's better to try to understand it, why it attracts people, since it could show us the next step of the way that people view religion. It might lead us to a new system of beliefs or a mini-paradigm within the greater theme of religion. Is it because the late part of the cycle represents idealism and future? That's right. It's so mentally oriented, very cut and dry. Compassion is not at a high point here. The idea of worshiping or feeling emotional about something greater, like really God, the whole concept, is discarded. There's this past peak sense of jadedness. Goodness exists differently in this new world. Compelled to keep my eyes on the road for her, I tried not to, but they drifted towards the speedometer. She hurtled down the highway at 80 miles per hour. She continued, See, until religion is understood as just a single piece of a much bigger whole, we won't be able to understand why it attracts satire and sarcastic ridicule. Well, I see why, I ventured. But the more we're able to see it in its true relationship to other concepts and seeing what place it has in our life, the better it will evolve to be something more useful and less divisive. Lots of the CTs really believe the conspiracies they hear and want to fix things, I said. You're right, to make things better. It almost seems like they're trying to break the code, solve the mystery of life, and yet they're going about it in a way they can't do anything about. Their intentions are good, but then they should ask themselves if watching YouTube is the best way to spend their time. If they read those stories in the National Enquirer, they would know better. Why is it any different on YouTube? Probably because they get attached to the people they're listening to, I speculated. But why does it matter to you so much? For one thing, I actually have broken the code and want to share it. I can see that conspiracy theories are indicated in the energies of the current cycles. If they could see it too, then it would take the wind out of the sails of those who lie and scam them with their crazy stories. It's a way to put people on the right track. Seems like good people are losing their way. It's true, and I think I matter more to the scammers than they do to me, since my evidence shows that their theories are false. She shook her head, wrapping up. Enough said. Are you ready for more detail on the clock? Yep, I'm ready, I said, with my pen poised above my little notebook. Journey through the middle stages. We'll look at the next four steps, she said, as we drove across a long bridge. All right, I'm with you. The sign said we were crossing over the Kentucky Lake, a part of the Tennessee River. I saw the lake peppered with recreational boats, water skiers, and fishers. Now we're at seven o'clock, where the true self is revealed like a teenager showing off their art. Eight o'clock is about perfecting the physical world around that self through health, work, and purpose. Eventually, at 9 o'clock comes time for being and reflecting on a partner. And then 10 o'clock is the emotional response to the partnership concepts that were revealed at 9 o'clock. The four signs are Leo, Virgo, Libra, and Scorpio. I related to the first four steps of the cycle as my childhood, and now it sounded like 7 o'clock were my teenage years proving my creative abilities and talents and going to college yet prior to supporting myself in the physical sense. Then eight o'clock was when I embraced my love of cupcakes, writing and filming, the time of finding my purpose, my service, 
Since 9 and 10 o'clock were partnership periods, I deduced that I was probably somewhere around there in my life cycle. She continued, Whereas these themes are presented as different periods of the life, they're really pieces of a well-established structure of our paradigm, and they all exist together, both in concert and at odds with one another. It's not just the human life cycle, but it's the basis for the life cycle of everything on Earth, as well as us walking through the energies as we go through our own personal cycles and the yearly cycle. You'll see, you'll see. Her eyes were all twinkly. Do you think that labeling and categorizing everything is such a great idea? I asked. Well, of course I do. That's what I do. Making order of everything shows that each piece has its role to play. This increases our appreciation for everything, even the things that seem not so good, and it exposes and hopefully eliminates duality and negativity within us. But labeling things, like you say, at the peak or at the bottom, could lead to judgment of one step over the other, I protested. The point of knowing the different steps is to keep you present in the moment. It objectifies the splits that we naturally dwell in. But keep in mind that one thing being later or earlier than another, or at the top or bottom, doesn't make it better or worse. All concepts are equal in the way that they each have their own role in making up the whole. That got me thinking that if this idea were part of proven scientific thought, humanity would have a useful system that could help people see the world more clearly. When you know the order, you can see the story that the themes tell us about ourselves. I use a regular old clock because everyone around the world can relate to it. Even people who speak different languages in different countries use the same clock. That's another little thing we take for granted all the time. I guess you're right. I never really thought of that. I'll just review 7 through 11 o'clock in a little more detail because so far we've only looked at it with a broad brush stroke, she said, with her characteristic enthusiasm. Cool, I said, as I watched the landscape roll by outside. The 7 o'clock point is the second level of the spiritual expression in the cycle. No longer at the bottom, there is now the appearance of the fully developed self. Elements of self-expression like art, music, dance, whatnot, make their debut. It's fiery hot, boyish, spirited, and direct. There's a gearing up for adulthood here, a strengthening of the self and the individuality expressed. How does it actually show itself, I asked. Well, showing itself is key, and it can look like ego. When it misbehaves with others, it loses respect. Its method of misbehavior would be to be too strong in a sea of other individuals without the knowledge or experience to back it up. It's still low and early in the cycle, so there's much to learn at this stage. At the same time, it's the creative fire that drives the cycle to shoot up from the bottom with momentum. Now guess what happens at 8 o'clock? Time to get a job, I guess? Exactly. Along with other things, this second level of the physical has to think about the body and all the things that go into caring for it. And also, there's a focus on task, order, and organization. It's a blend of mental and physical energy. And just an aside, explaining the details of the cycle here will give us a good foundation to have an informed conversation about the late part of it, which gets complex because of the cumulative nature of the cycle and since it's outside of the world's paradigm. 
Many people don't even believe in things of the later cycle. It's where aliens, conspiracies, energy, and even dreams come in. But moving on, at nine o'clock, the second level of the mental area, we have that strong ego of seven and eight o'clock projecting onto other people, wanting to interact, chat them up, and see what they're about. This energy evolves from observation and inspection to processing gender. Do you see how nine o'clock is opposite the three o'clock point where self-identity is born? Uh-huh. Now the focus is on others. As we walk from nine to 10 o'clock through the 30 steps of a sign month's evolution, it shifts from codependency to interdependence to equality. It respects and values the art of others and minds its manners. It lets go into a super relational and intelligent bonanza of art for the other person, at which point it moves into 10 o'clock. I took notes madly at this point. She was right. Each step was increasingly more complex. At 10 o'clock, it gets deeply and emotionally personal with the partner. There's so much packed and stacked in this step because it's the end of the personal part of the cycle. Think of each step as building from all the previous points. Here is emotional interaction with the partner who was more or less created in the mind in the previous sign. Remember SPME? Nine o'clock is a mental energy, 10 o'clock is emotional energy. Okay, I see. Here, you certainly know other people for who they are, but there's an aspect that you're not aware of, and that is how the grooves that have formulated translate to your emotional reaction. Because 10 o'clock is an indwelling, feeling focus, there is drama in this arena, even more drama than there was at six o'clock. When emotions come into play and intimate relationships are involved, there can be jealousy, possessiveness, control, suspicion, distrust. Sounds like that's where the fun is, I said sarcastically. Sometimes it's as if we have a whole world like that. It's what the Celestine Prophecy was talking about with the fourth insight, but we'll get to that. Want to take a break before we tackle the rest? Yes, let's do that, but do a quickie on them so I can mentally prepare myself. The really quick version is that the rest of the energy is beyond what's personal. 11 o'clock is the passion of beliefs, like one's culture and religion. 12 o'clock is society, government, and authority. 1 o'clock is the future, progressiveness, community, and like-mindedness. And 2 o'clock is the totality of the world, all summed up. She turned off at the rest stop just as she was wrapping up. Pulling into the parking space, she said, I'm just going to run in there and fill up my water bottle. She bounced out of the car. She was certainly spry for her age, I marveled. I also got out and prepared for the next leg of the trip. I stood in the sunshine, basking in the bright light. It felt like a warm hug. I walked around to the trunk and pulled out a bag of party mix. I figured I could have some fruit, but I was really craving something crunchy and salty. I checked my phone and saw Erica had sent me some texts. She was in bad shape. She texted that she was crying a lot and drinking earlier than normal. I didn't want to ask what time that was. She was heartbroken. I wanted to help, but I didn't know how. Grace came back and got in the driver's seat again. Are you sure, Grace? I asked. Oh yes, it's my turn and I enjoy it. She said as she backed out of the parking space. She jumped on the ramp back to Interstate 40.
of Energy's final four. Once we were back on the road, still traveling at breakneck speed, she said, Alrighty, we're at the third level of spirit, 11 o'clock. Notice its placement at the top of the clock. It's not at the tippy toppest, but it has a good overview and can see far and wide. This is the most expansive, mind-blowing energy of religion, travel, and philosophy. Zodiacally, it is Sagittarius. Monthwise, it's late November through to the winter solstice, which is around December 21st. Okay. After that, the next step, 12 o'clock, is at the absolute top. It's the third level of the earthy and physical energy. The energy from 11 o'clock is expansive and peaks at 12 o'clock, but then it pulls in quickly. It was inflated due to its fiery position, and now the opposite energy kicks in. It's constrained and tight, plus it's dropping off the top. This falling spot is both retentive and sophisticated and manifests as structure, law, authority, society, and corporations. What has been built up within our worldly paradigm? There's also a fear of loss, which translates to holding on to the things that have been built up over the course of the cycle. Things can be stingy. Think of Scrooge. It's Capricorn, right? I asked. Good, that's right. Cappy is tight. Since it's the final earth sign, anything past that is what I was talking about before. Intangible and therefore difficult for people to believe in. I mentioned before, at the end of Capricorn and the beginning of Aquarius is where you find science. See how it's looking into the future but at the same time adheres tightly to the physical world? Then along comes one o'clock, Aquarius, which is the third level of mental energy. There's a lot of intelligence here. It's also rebellious because the rules set in Capricorn are being released. It's the energy of metaphysics, idealism, symbolism, progressive thinking, the future, and intuition. It's free thinking and beyond the structured concept of gender. See how it flows? Oh yeah, I get it. But I see how when this kind of energy is discussed, it's different. You have to stretch your mind. Yes, because it's conceptual now. But anyway, the downside of 1 o'clock is that it's the alternative to the 12 o'clock energy, the hard reality of living on Earth. Here, there can be a lack of reality. That's why it leads to the conspiracy fears and ideas that are causing so much trouble. We'll be focused on this section of the clock a lot on this trip because of the things I teach that are related to the 1 o'clock energy, the Aquarian energy, she said, pausing. I'm hearing that throughout the cycle, there's been a building of the entire structure and now it's letting go? I asked. Exactly. Let's look at a few more things about this energy. The later part of the cycle means a lot of points have been accumulated. Plus, it's past the peak, so it's an outlier. Now, I know that not all people who are the sign of Aquarius are like that. That's right. We're not talking about people yet. It's still the energy. Some people do have an abundance of one kind of energy or another and thus would bear the qualities of the energy more strongly. But every person has a variety of energies. Plus remember, we all encounter all energies throughout the year via the day. Okay, that makes sense. Two to three o'clock from late February through all of March until the spring equinox is a darker and more dense feeling. It's when Lent is observed. In the year, it's the last month of winter, the end of the year. There's a sense of endurance and also an ending kind of feeling. 
There's also an anticipatory planning for this spring feeling. During March, April, you get the newness and springtime vibe again. So that brings us full circle, I said. Correct, Amundo. Now going back to speaking about people's energy, you'll see that the people we meet along our trip tend to be tapped into these later energies. You might say that their overall feel is one to three o'clock. These are the ones at the seminary, in Eden, and at the convention. They're characterized by their unique individuality, idealism, commitment to community, and striving towards an improved future. You also might notice heightened levels of intuition and a lot of quirkiness. I got a word in edgewise to tell her I couldn't wait to meet those people. Since they're beyond the paradigm, they tend to eschew in the traditional societal scripts of the 12 o'clock area and embrace an alternative future idea. They take what we have in this world to a place that is what's next. They might strike you as visionaries. They're more aware or interested in what is beyond the paradigm and expect others to be as well. Of course, since they hold later energies, they're in the minority. I couldn't help but notice, so I said, It sounds like, as a group, they pride themselves on their uniqueness, but they're unique in similar ways. Well, they're unique relative to normal people that stay within the paradigm. And of course, as I said, every person is a mix of energies. Of course. So what we observe about them could be not one o'clock, I clarified. That's right, she said. And there may be a conflict between their one o'clock and twelve o'clock selves. We'll talk a lot more about that energy itself when we meet them. All right, I'm stoked, I said. But just a little more about that final step at two o'clock. It's the third level of emotions. It wraps up each piece within the system. It's a misty, dreamy, mystical place of sensing and feeling. Uh Uh-huh, sounds like my kind of energy. Since this is the place where the old cycle is released, it's also about the unknown and about finding the fulfillment of completion. Here there are extremes of expressions. It can look like anything from abject poverty to artistic brilliance, deep sadness to musical genius, from the pits of misery to spiritual enlightenment. Here's where you find forgiveness, veracity, and quality. If you think about music or the ocean, the mental energy is now free-flowing and expressive. You can get a feel for this area. The be-all and the end-all, I summarize. That's it. Like dolphins leaping in the ocean. And the challenge in this step is translating its supernatural vibe to how it reveals itself on Earth. It's flowy and mutable. I think it's hard for this energy to ground without distortion. This deficiency manifests as escapism, perhaps through drug or alcohol use, some delusion, a sense of missing or loss, and as some of the more detailed points within the step, even depression. It can flow from love to confusion and back to love. Once it connects back to the beginning point again, it is whole. This whole thing is everything and represents oneness, God, completion, fulfillment, acceptance, and real love. Strangely, at the same time, it is nothingness. This final step is Pisces, the famous fishies. I can see how grounding at the end of the cycle would be so hard. I thought about falling from the peak down to a place where everything is new again. At least the new start is clearly delineated. 
The two o'clock area is the domain of the spiritual, but spirituality is not easy to talk about. It is an ethereal state that is hard to understand when approached from a grounded place. So how do we talk about it? Well, just listen carefully and keep asking questions. Try to understand it on an intuitive level. Well, that's a lot, I exclaimed. That's enough to chew on for a while. She agreed and suggested we decompress from the lesson. She turned on the radio. We were both quiet as she first searched for a good station, and then we listened to the music. It was country and western, of course. I processed the final four steps of the cycle. I tried to imagine, but had no idea how I would ever translate all of this information into a video. We were already in so much deeper than it would allow. Dead Musician Communion in Graceland. An hour later, we landed at Graceland. For you who are not aware, it's Elvis Presley's familial home. It was surprisingly small and lacking in good taste, totally not what I expected for such a star. To make things worse, it was posthumously converted into a tacky trap for tourists. The parking lot was out by some trailers and U-Hauls. We stood in a line to pay for our entrance and then another one to get our headphones. We went in with a group of about 10 other curiosity seekers. We mutely followed a path through the house and down into the basement. The main living room was decorated in a style that could only be dreamed up by the nouveau riche and best described as Hollywood glam meets Greek architecture. It was brimming over with carved marble columns and alabaster busts. The furniture was upholstered in white satin embossed with paisley patterns. It brought back the worst of the 70s. Above the fireplace was a mirrored wall on which another mirror was hung, a large sun-themed number. Add in voluminous gold curtains and strutting peacock statues and you definitely have a look. The rest of the rooms had their own distinct personalities, each ornately decorated with bold color choices. We followed the group on the self-guided tour past the jungle room, which Grace said was famous. It was dark with heavy wood paneling, astroturf green wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, animal skin, and leather upholstery, frilly sheer balloon curtains, and lots of artificial plants. It was a travesty. I'm not gonna keep going on about it. Some people adore it and think anything Elvis is absolutely marvelous, darling. Grace was one of those people an A number one Elvis expert and a longtime Major League fan. It was due to Elvis and being at Graceland that I discovered the bizarre thing that we had in common, revealed as we made our way through his McCastle. We'd been touring for about 20 minutes when she stopped. We were left behind by the others as she motioned for me to take off the headphones. She had something to tell me. In a confidential whisper, she said, listen, one time, Elvis told me in a song, and I froze, stunned at the revelation. Could it be, was it even possible that, like myself, Grace felt that dead musicians communicated with her? It's probably an assumption anyone would have made about her, but I always thought that I alone enjoyed that claim to fame. I had never heard or read about others doing it, too, and to think that very morning he had come to me in a song. What a terrifically weird thing to have in common. 
My awe for her ballooned into full-blown respect. I had been waiting a long time for someone to answer questions about this phenomenon, so I jumped right in. You're not going to believe this, but me too. She looked at me with surprise, eyes wide. I continued, not only that, but it even happened this morning while I was driving and you were sleeping. And it was Elvis singing Promised Land. But what do you think? Are we genuinely communing with dead people or is it a coincidence and all in our heads? Promised Land? Wow, a road trip, the cycle, that's just so amazing. When I hear Elvis singing, and it's not just Elvis, there are others as well, but when I hear Elvis, it's really special. Sometimes I'll hear him on the radio or whatever, and other times a song will pop in my head and the singing's inside of me. It might be when I'm having a hard time making a decision or when I feel a little lost. He's my comfort, my security, my rock. She gazed off dreamily, recalling her youth perhaps. But no, she wanted to tell me about a time she got one of the most important messages of her life from him while sitting on the edge of a pool with just her and her thoughts. It was more than 30 years ago. She wanted to move on from her partner, but she wasn't sure how or when to do it. The combination of dishonesty, insecurity, and need for control, coupled with his drug use and cheating, had become too much for her, and she knew she needed to break it off while she was still young. It wasn't too late to start over. So the story goes, as she was sitting there, she decided to clear her mind and meditate. She left her feet in the water and lifted her consciousness into a quiet space above her thoughts. And what did she hear? Who rather? Yep, Elvis. Her inner voice, sounding exactly like Elvis, was crooning one of his biggest hits. It's now or never. And that was the right song. Absolutely spot on. Besides the fact that her inner newer knew that it was right, there was confirmation since she had just heard it in a dream two nights before, granted just a fragment, and then again the tail end of it on the radio when she stopped by to see a friend. She had been singing along to that song ever since she was in her early 20s. The lyrics didn't match her circumstances exactly, but she knew in that moment that it was okay to make the move. It might have been some inner, hidden intelligence that was ready to give and receive an answer, or her high self, or her inner child, the superconscious, or the subconscious, as it were. But without a doubt, it was a message from beyond her everyday self. In her heart of hearts, she believed it came directly from Elvis himself. And you know what? Even if it was just her common sense working behind the scenes and telling her what she wanted to hear, so be it. It was exactly what she needed and the timing was on point. She left the bad partner and never looked back. Thank you, Elvis, or his impersonator, whatever the case may be. It's always helpful to get some transcendental validation. That's the two o'clock arena, the end of the cycle, she said. What is, I asked. Music, dead people and spirit, spiritual phenomena, and at the very end, the space, the connection between the omega and the alpha, it puts the question to rest, she finished, as we put the headphones back on and continued our journey through Elvis's home. The end of the tour landed us in his rather mundane-looking backyard. From there, we headed back to the car. I don't mean to lack a sense of awe, but besides my newfound solidarity with Grace, the tour was sadly, dully uneventful.
Grace faces her clockaholic tendencies. Once we checked into the boxcar, I hatched a plan for Grace's introductory video. There were three scenes. There was one in the woods with the sunrise in the background. The second was some clips from Graceland. The final was in an outdoor seating area where we had dinner that night. I wanted her to be seated at a round table at an outdoor restaurant at sundown with twinkling lights all around her. We headed out to dinner and sure enough, found the perfect spot where I filmed the footage. The script needed to start strong with a striking message, something to really grab the attention of the fast scrolling viewer. I knew a few rules of video marketing. It needed to begin with the all important you in the first two seconds of the video and the lighting needed to be dramatic and contrasting. When it was all said and done, it opened with Grace and the sunrise asking the questions to engage the viewer and moved to the footage taken of the living room of Graceland on the green screen. It then morphed into Grace's face, well disguised by her wig, makeup, and filters, sitting around the table talking to the camera with an intimate tone. I spliced film clips together to match the mystical mood of the message, giving the whole thing a carefree vibe with a sparkle. I imagined it going viral. We can all dream. Here's what she said. Are you ready to learn how the world is made? Have you ever wondered how science can coexist with the Zodiac? Do the spiritual musings of the modern day mystics seem absurdly idealistic and optimistic? Welcome to my world. I'm Grace and I'm a clockaholic, addicted to researching the mysteries of time. Two components of time, the day and the year, are created by the sun's relationship with the earth. The rest of time, the eons, the decades, the hours, minutes, and seconds, are all man-made constructs that come from these two scientific facts. The daily angles that arise from the relationship of these two bodies are 365 energetic units of the year, and they keep repeating every year for as long as the earth exists. The order in which they roll out is reflected symbolically in the zodiac. These energies concretize to reveal the world in all its variety of expressions. At the core of your subconscious, you know the energies and how they play out in their natural order as the year marches on. Tell me where you are in the world in the comments and follow me for more revelations around this fascinating thought model. One minute and 11 seconds, perfect. It was a little opaque for the scrolling spectator, but I hoped it might stir the curiosity of some of the more intelligent viewers. After filming at the restaurant, I circled back to our earlier discussion. There's such a synchronous aspect to this whole dead musician thing. I mean, obviously it's weird that we both experience it, but I'm talking about how the exact right song comes on at the exact right time, and there's a message in the lyrics. What do you make of it? It's probably a combination of a couple things. The first is it happens more when you're open and looking for it. That might be because it's happening all the time and we aren't aware. Or it could be that being open catalyzes it, she said. Right, and it seems like once I'm tuned in to their being connections, I tend to seek them out and pay even more attention when they compound on one another. Like I'll hear a song and then walk into a record shop an hour later and hear their same lyrics playing in the background. Or maybe I'll hear the elevator music version playing at a grocery store later on when I'm shopping. Exactly. And here's the other thing. I think it has to do with correlating energy. The fractal thing we talked about? Take the promised land, for example. There's Elvis energy in the air for you. We're headed to Graceland. 
plus your traveling. These two things are in the energetic vibe around you, which is why you're involved with them. The music is just another manifestation of that current energy. But it wasn't just Elvis, it was Promised Land, a song that is associated with the hero's journey, which is related to what you're teaching me. And it's a song that the Grateful Dead covers. And like Elvis is your guy, Jerry Garcia, the lead singer who died, is mine. I elaborated. Grace paused thoughtfully and said, I think that the force that makes it happen operates on lots of different levels. It's not just energy trickling down into manifestation. There's a simultaneous higher force of love and intelligence similar to our own consciousness. Remember being made in the image? It's as if someone out there knows your immediate problems and cares about them and wants to heal you or make you laugh. They do say that laughter is the best medicine, I said. I think laughing puts you on the same wavelength as the higher vibration of that force of everythingness. There's a lot of exuberance on the higher levels. Plus, when you choose to look at an experience with an eye towards discovering more, it's like what we talked about. You're opening to connection. From there, discovering more lubricates the wheel that keeps you moving forward to learn even more. So by choosing to look at the moment to understand it more comprehensively, you're brought into that close connection with the force of Godness? Uh-huh, that's what I think. We wrapped up the dinner by splitting a helping of the house lava cake. It wasn't a cupcake, but the chocolate on chocolate was positively mouth-watering. After that, I was ready to get back to the boxcar. I wanted to finish putting the TikTok together and post it. of the web. Once we were tucked away in our separate sections in the boxcar and I finished the video, I spent some time watching TikToks before I fell asleep. After watching a few, I skipped over to read the comments that my followers had on the video that I had posted the previous night, the one about our trip agenda. I was horrified by what I saw. One guy, Harvey Lee 7 wrote the nastiest thing about Grace on my page. He must have found me through her following me. His negativity got 23 likes. A couple of others commented in response and agreed with him. And then five others made comments that were other lying atrocities, like she was a member of the Illuminati and drank baby's blood. It was problematic. These guys were like dogs in mud. Once they started digging, they didn't want to stop. I worked backwards from the comments to see what other organizations he bad actors belonged to. They were almost all men. I researched their accounts and was able to trace four of them back to a common ideology via a YouTube channel to which they all referred to on their own pages. I wasn't surprised to find the topic of that channel was a conspiracy theory about an underground tunnel from Washington DC to Los Angeles that a bullet train could travel through in 30 minutes. Such nonsense. From that YouTube account, I found a huge forum that covered topics of every imaginable conspiracy theory. I searched for Grace Darling and her name popped up instantly. She was the topic of several threads that talked about what they said were her beliefs. Most egregious was their accusation that she formulated her beliefs specifically to oppose them and to cast doubt upon the forum's legitimacy as though she was their intentional enemy. They ranked her as one of the most radical adversaries that they were up against. 
She was demonized, misquoted, misunderstood, and bullied with unspeakable cruelty. The shocker was there really was a price on her head. I couldn't understand who would take such a risk, only a fanatic, which was exactly what I was worried about. I immediately sent Erica a text explaining what was going on with the situation. I asked her to create an untraceable email address to establish an ID on that forum. We needed to get in there and keep tabs on what they were saying. Maybe she could say some things that would discourage them from any more threats. I didn't hear from her that night and I figured the worst, that she'd let down her boundaries and was sleeping with Jeffrey. I went to bed, doubting that I would slumber peacefully under the circumstances. As I slipped beneath the covers, I smelled the scent of the freshly laundered sheets and relished the touch of the soft linen on my skin. I focused on my breathing in and out. That helped calm me down, and soon I drifted off into a deep and dreamless sleep. Thank you.